Hello, and welcome back to Catalyzing Coherence. We are happy to have you here today. We have Jeremy Lent here with us today, who is a, an amazing individual and author of The Patterning Instinct, which is a fascinating tour de force through the history of the development of culture and philosophy and how that shapes our mind. Um, this was brought to my attention. I, I can't believe I didn't know about it, but Brian came to me a couple weeks ago and said, hey, Matt, like, there's this book and this author, and he knows, he knows, like, it's everything. It's everything we're talking about. It's everything we're trying to figure out. Like, we need to have him on the show, and, and, and you're here today, and I thought it might be nice for Brian to talk a little bit about what moved you to him so much and like what he saw in that book and that can kind of transition into this conversation. Sure. Yeah. So thanks, Jeremy and uh, Matthew. And so, yeah, your tagline for the book, you know, a cultural history of humanity's search for meaning. Mm. Um, when I was describing your book to folks, uh, I say it's a combination of uh, Yuval Harari Sapiens meets sort of Bertrand Russell's history of Western philosophy in that it's telling the largest tale imaginable about our species and the nature of the world we live in mm -hmm. and putting it together in a coherent story. And coherence is obviously something that we are um, super interested in and believe is imperative to catalyze. But your book, you even mentioned, you're, you're, you're creating here a coherent cosmological system that, or, or, or attempting to at least, to, to put all of these different worldviews into the same space of understanding mm. so that we can try to recognize evolution contextually and how it's adapted to different cultures and how all of these things have bubbled forth into the present reality of our technological age. Mm. And so this goes deep into the roots of um, sort of East and West, trying to understand the nature of duality and oneness Mm -hmm. um, I think the the ways you articulate um, Taoism and then Confucianism is so uh, important for people mm -hmm. to understand because they're probably the most um, approximate frameworks of the world that we have, in my humble opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, I've just found as someone that's an idea seeker, they're just great ideas to grip, your, you know, really bite into. Um, so we're definitely going to talk about that today. Um, I'm trying to think where we might want to kick this off. Is there anything that, you know, w this is a relatively new book for you. What was the, the, the inspiration for writing? I know your background, you've, you've, you've done some other things as yeah. well. How did you come to, to, to even start thinking about the pattern? Yeah, instinct? yeah, well, sure. Yeah, well, you know, as you said, the subtitle is A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning. Mm -hmm. And for me, really, the book emerged out of my own personal mm -hmm. search for meaning. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> because as, as, you, as you kind of alluded to, the first part of my life, I was actually doing very different stuff. I actually was uh, uh, a, a founder of an internet company during that first internet phase <laughs> and actually took it public and was really living a, a very different life. And then a lot of the things I'd built kind of crashed around me. Um, my wife at the time, she passed away some years back. She became very sick. I left the company to look after her. The company then basically collapsed within a year or two. And it felt like the things I'd built my life around were kind of crashing. Um, mm -hmm. And even uh, my wife that I looked after for a number of years then um, was in cognitive decline, so I kind of lost her, really, mm -hmm. even while she was still alive. And I went through this phase of realizing I could build my life going forward 
in a place that was truly meaningful, but what was that? Mm -hmm. So I started my own search. So it really came out of my own personal uh, desire to understand, not just take what was given as these received ideas of what meaning is, but really understand for myself, what is really a meaningful life? Mm -hmm. And uh, what do other cultures say about that? And then as I started to sort of peel the onion, if you will, I got more and more into looking at sciences because whatever I did with my life going forward, I wanted it to be truly uh, rigorous intellectually as well as feeling that it was deeply meaningful spiritually. Mm -hmm. So I got kind of stuck in a lot of reductionist science ideas of, uh, you know, when we really look at it, life is tight, is really meaningless. But in my heart, I didn't feel that was right but then kept looking and then kept starting to find some of what I see as some of the answers in traditional indigenous and then traditional Chinese thought and started to discover systems and mm -hmm. complexity science too. Mm -hmm. And it, th mm -hmm. these yeah. things began to cohere yeah, in a way for me. It's yeah. so funny because I mean, my, my search is just similar in that I was searching for meaning in my own life and I you know, go down this rabbit hole of ideas and, and it's mm -hmm. we it's funny that we all come out not all but a lot of people come out and we're like oh yeah like this is really important like complexity science is really important Taoism mm. is really important you know the Upanishads is a great read everyone yeah. should read the Bhagavad Gita like understand like Brahman and Atman and all these things they're like really cool ideas um, and I'm so excited like what Matthew and I are trying to do here is to help see these ideas into the zeitgeist and with your book you've so beautifully put, wrapped it into this 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 experience of like okay here they are mm. this is it guys i think one of the one of the core thematics in the book that we might that might help us kind of start with the broader brush strokes and, and perhaps go from there yeah. is this notion of culture shaping values and then value shaping history yes. mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. notion that there is this reciprocity between um the course of history the course of action and the culture in which we're embedded and that when yeah. separate cultures have their own perhaps evolutionary paths their own distinct behaviors or rituals or customs um, that shapes literally the universe of action and choice in a way that can be invisible. So maybe talk a little bit about that and like, especially the, maybe the dichotomy as you see it between East and West or the different paths yeah. they took. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great uh, place to sort of start to dig in. And um, as yeah, well, as you know, the, the book begins with what I see as one of these iconic stories of uh, around that whole issue of how culture shapes history because actually a lot of modern uh, historians say the opposite like the, the kind of the mainstream current approach to history um, the people like Jared Diamond got um, set in place and uh, you know he he wrote some great work and did a great job of pulling history away from this kind of cultural essentialism that uh, it was stuck in for basically centuries in, in sort of in the Western mind, which is this idea that um, somehow there was something better about the European uh, worldview, which made Europe and America like, you know, more successful and all this stuff. So he kind of um, took this away and looked at history at this, what it was known as geographic determinism. Mm -hmm. Actually, people are the same everywhere, but the geography leads to different ways in which people evolve. So that idea 
is a powerful one, a step forward. But then people got really stuck in this notion of thinking that human beings are the same everywhere and that the only thing that shapes history is where the, how the geography works. Right. But what they're really doing, actually, that's another form of cultural imperialism. They're applying modern Western values and beliefs about human nature and, and saying that's what people are all across the board, not realizing that they're stuck in their own frame. Mm -hmm. So the uh, so this kind of story I'm looking at is it goes back into the 15th century and we all know that uh, in 1492 Christopher Columbus <laughs> sailed the ocean blue and discovered the, <laughs> the new meme world is deeply embedded yeah, exactly <laughs> and um, you know and we go okay well that's how history that's how the modern world began and imperialism etc but so what what very few people know is that earlier in that same century in the early 1400s uh, there was this Chinese Admiral Zhang who basically commanded an armada of about 300 massive ships, so big that you could have fit 10 right. yeah. of, of Columbus's uh, boats into one of Jones' boats. This huge armada, something like 27,000 people in this, in this armada. He sailed the Indian Ocean for about 30 years, basically owned the place. You know, he could go to East Africa, Arabia, Sri Lanka, and he was treated like a god in some places mm -hmm. because they had so much power. Mm -hmm. um, but he didn't choose to do what Columbus did when yeah. he, so w when Columbus landed in the West Indies, he looked at how the indigenous people seemed so naive and um, so vulnerable. They didn't even know what a sword was. And he wrote back to the king and queen of Spain, you know, with just a few people, we could like uh, take control of them all and bring them all back as slaves yeah. to Spain. He was instantly focused on this notion of exploitation, right. of using power to disrupt whatever they saw and just basically exploit the people and the land. But Jung had a very different worldview. His view was the sense of, of harmonious equilibrium. So he definitely thought that China was like the numero uno, and so he'd want to bring uh, like ambassadors. He'd find the prince of whatever area, bring them back to China to kowtow to the emperor, recognize how great China was. But it wasn't about exploiting. He, did, he could have, if he'd wanted to, enslaved entire populations, mined the wealth, uh, he, but he didn't choose to. In fact, when there was piracy, he would take his, his forces and uh, you know, get, get control of the, of the pirates. Mm -hmm. So his notion was that the reason for having power was to maintain harmony, mm -hmm. to uh, keep things in a, in a place of equilibrium for human flourishing rather than exploit. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, no, none of us have ever heard of Admiral Zhang and everyone knows of Columbus. So mm -hmm. somehow that Western approach of exploitation became, uh, because of the success in how it, how it basically dominated the world, has become what we think of the de facto approach to the world, which is really unique to a particular culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's perhaps because, I mean, it seems as if what you're saying, and please correct me if yeah. this is an incorrect uh, characterization, is that there might have been still, there might still have been some element of imperialism there, but it might have been a more, it's an integrative imperialism to some extent or like a more harmonious meshing of those that contact yes. surface area between mm -hmm. uh, someone exploring or moving into new territory and those who existed before and that might be more nuanced and balanced but it's also perhaps slower and more delicate mm. and 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 the western cultural imperative was more um, move forward as quickly and forcefully as possible 
to in, like, invade the space and, and completely replace what is there. Yeah. Um, and therefore, like maybe it outcompetes the other in the short term, but causes a lot of harm in the long term. Yeah, I think you really uh, right on in, in what you're saying. And, and, and something that comes out of, of what you're saying, it's really important to emphasize. And I try to touch on this a few times in the book, but sometimes when I, I get so excited talking about some of these other cultures, it gets misinterpreted, is there's no golden age in some past. And, and no matter, as I'm looking at that contrast, somebody could hear me sort of impl imply that what I'm saying is Jung's approach was the right one and Columbus's was the wrong one. But, you know, China at that time was uh, imperialist, um, hugely hierarchical, hugely uh, patriarchal. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the most, just hugely unequal, uh, just like so many, in fact, virtually every agrarian society, agrarian civilization in history. So we don't want to sort of view that as some sort of they had the answer and we got to get back to that answer. More than anything, I think, is that we can look at these different cultural frames um, for clues, for just for one, for this recognition that very few people have in today's world that there are other worldviews, there are other ways of making sense of the world than mm -hmm. the one that is pounded into our brains from when we're just inference and we just see all around us. Mm -hmm. I think that's if if there's just one message people take away from reading my book, that I'd be satisfied if that was just the the message, the recognition there are other ways of making sense of things. Mm -hmm. um, but also, one step beyond that is also recognizing that other cultures may have deep, profound insights into the nature of reality and the nature of the human relationship right. with the universe that we can actually uh, use, ac accommodate, incorporate into a modern worldview, not to go back in time, not to believe in some golden age, but to, re to re recognize areas of value that maybe we can cohere, mm -hmm. uh, to use your, your word, into a worldview that could actually allow us to fix some of these imbalances mm -hmm. that our modern worldview has. Mm -hmm. I think that what we need to understand about the modern worldview is hugely powerful. It was the modern, this, that, that sort of underlying that worldview of Columbus's was the same kind of thinking that led to the scientific revolution. This notion that if we can understand things, we can get power over them, and then mm -hmm. we can do all these amazing things. We can change the realities that have gone before. Mm -hmm. Amazing, powerful ideas, but that's led because of the way it's evolved in those, especially the last century or two, it's led to these huge imbalances between the, the direction of human civilization and the natural world, mm -hmm. to the point that our very civilization itself is at stake. Mm -hmm. And certainly the natural world is suffering hugely mm -hmm. as a result of what we're doing. Yeah, the culture has shifted or it's been um, influenced by this notion of man versus nature. Mm -hmm. that stems from this duality that goes back to ancient times, to the philosophies that seeded the world that we still live in today. That's um, right. Yeah, is there any, you know, with, with respect to, you know, ancient Greece, you know, Plato's mentioned a lot in this book, so is um, the ancient Vedic texts and, and, and the sort of mystical interpretations of Atman and Brahman, um, how do you how do you view those sort of dualistic frameworks with respect to the evolution of life on this planet? Yeah, you know, that was one of the things that I discovered as I did the research for this is 
going back in time, realizing that there was there was really a new way of looking at the world and in this kind of dualistic form that arose really you could, the seeds of it were back with the proto-indo-europeans these right. kind of horsemen in the steps like mm -hmm. thousands of years ago the and um, people i mean most of us haven't even heard of them and even the archaeologists they're like putative people we don't actually know exactly where they live that's why they're called the proto-indo-europeans there yeah. but we know for sure just based on etymology looking at languages where they come from mm -hmm. that there was this group of horsemen uh, in the steppes some thousand years before who and their culture let, went into India in, with the Aryans and um, it also went into Iran and became Zoroastrianism and it went into Greece and led to the thinking of the ancient Greeks mm -hmm. so and in all in all these different areas it was fundamentally dualistic and what we mean when I say dualistic in that respect is um, up until that time in history, all the different worldviews that early agrarian civilizations or um, hunter-gatherers or indigenous people had around the world was the sense of everything being connected in one way or another. Mm -hmm. um, th they all had this sense that humans had spirits. When you died, there was still a spirit around. Right. Um, but the spirit itself was kind of semi-material. It wasn't like this abstract entity. It was, and, and it was kind of connected with natural things and um, all of nature had spirits. And even if they had some sense of a high God up there in the heavens, uh, it was something, it was sort of part of an, an, a deep connection with everything else around. There was some sort of materiality to it all. But what the ancient Greeks did was come up with this notion of a split cosmos, where they said there's actually two dimensions. There's this eternal dimension, which is just almost like an abstraction. And everything is perfection in that dimension and unchanging and mm -hmm. eternal. And then there's the worldly dimension, the material stuff yeah. that is polluted. Um, and there was this clear sense of good and bad. That that eternal dimension was good. Yeah. And this stuff down like the, here the seed was bad. of like the idea of like fallenness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's uh, and so the Christianity, in a sense, was uh, was the sort of the a dualistic systematic cosmology coming from that yeah. early Greek idea. Mm -hmm. um, and, and along with this world, this universe being split, they saw humans as being split, a soul and a body. Mm -hmm. And they saw reason as being this part of humanity that connected us with divinity. Mm -hmm. So they saw the split. So emotion became this bad thing mm -hmm. that sort of took you away from uh, being in, the, in touch with eternal divinity. Mm -hmm. uh, and... And so they saw the soul and um, the, this kind of separation from the body as being the fundamental essence of a split human being. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, was what I began to realize. That was one of the sort of underlying foundations of thought mm -hmm. that we still inherit to this day. Mm -hmm. So Christianity took those ideas and created this idea of a God and uh, this kind of well below. And essentially, if you... Um, if your soul uh, could make sure you led a good life, you'd end up in heaven, your soul would end up in heaven. Or if you actually gave way to your passions, you'd end up in hell. Mm -hmm. So this very, very split dualistic thought. Um, but also when you begin to realize that, when you begin to think of the human as being really that soul, um, then you begin to look at the rest of the world as being kind of desacralized. 
because if humans, if what makes humans divine is the fact that we have a soul, mm-hmm. um, do other animals have a soul? Well, no, if you connect the soul with reason, you say, well, other animals, they don't have language, right, they don't right. have reason, they're not really, um, um, yeah. they, they don't have the same level of divinity yeah. that we have. You like sever the entire emergent pathway that led to the creation of reason yeah. itself. Exactly. The emergence exactly. of reason. Right. And, and then, and what's so fascinating is that Descartes came along and he sort of almost took these, these ancient Christian and Greek ideas of soul and stuff and he t- translated it into more modern language of mind. And so when, and he was the one who really, he took soul and kind of said, actually, soul is mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so his, his great thing is, I think, therefore I am, right. which basically he, he sort of defined his very human essence as being his ability to think, his mm-hmm. reason. And also not the opposite, which is I am, therefore I think, which might be also quite appropriate if you're that thinking about right. it reciprocally. That's right. Or in fact, um, you know, the very notion of I mm-hmm. um, is, is this kind of right. split that we, we come to. So there's one interesting uh, book looking at language in, say, East Asian languages versus uh, Western type of languages. And you couldn't say I think, therefore I am in an East Asian language, right. you'd say something more like thinking, therefore being. Yeah. And there's a whole different yeah. reality. It's like this kind of process. Um, and you, it, just, it would lead to a completely different direction of thought. Right. Yeah. This notion of process is very important, right? So on the East, you have the Book of Changes, which is um, the, the, the paradigm there is heaven and earth. And it has this rhythm, this yin and yang, harmonious dance of, of change. And so that is what seeded that sort of whole um, philosophy, which is in distinction to what we just talked about. Um, yes. Yes. And so that's really sort of one of the core themes of the book is it's almost like you can look at these two different pathways. So right. you see this, um, this amazing new form of dualistic thinking beginning with the ancient Greeks. And then in China, um, you see a very different pathway where they took some of the earliest indigenous and hunt together ways of looking at the world as being everything being interconnected. But they developed a very uh, sophisticated and thoughtful cosmology based on that, mm-hmm. which, as you say, like this looks at this notion of the I Ching as the book of changes. And their underlying metaphor, if you will, of the universe was what I uh, called like the um, like a harmonious web of life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you can think, like imagine you're walking in a forest somewhere and you see a, a spider's web. And you know that just a little leaf falling and touching mm-hmm. that spider's web causes reverberations of that web all through it. Or just a drop of water will do the same. And so when you, if you look at the whole universe as being this web that we're on, then you instantly begin to realize that the very in the smallest actions that each of us take has reverberations, some of which we may not even be aware of. Some even of more so than now that we're completely networked as tightly as we are yeah, with all of our technology. Exactly, yeah. exactly. That just makes it even even more the case. And so, um, and it leads to almost like a sense of humility in how you approach the world, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because if you have, if you're living in a web of life, you don't want to disrupt it. You don't right. want to exploit it to the point that because everything could like f- come apart at mm-hmm. the seams. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Would you say that? So this is reminding me pretty strongly. Some someone we talk a lot about is, is Terence McKenna. Um, in, in many respects, mm-hmm. like he had he threw out a lot of ideas, and, yeah. and many of those were, I think, quite deep and, and profound mm-hmm. in in some of their insights that have been unpacked later. One of the talks uh, on his, when he spoke of the I Ching or the I Ching, he was speaking of this notion of 
the West having been effectively focused on mastering matter and energy mm -hmm. and the control of like that essential nature of, of what is seemingly fixed mm -hmm. um, and boiling it down to its most uh, its most essential parts, its most like the smallest component atoms, atomos, right? Yes. Uh, whereas the East was far more focused on the notion of time or flows or process mm. or unfolding. Yes. And they, they focus very much on mastering um, this idea of process dynamics over time right. and created very specialized tools for, for thinking of, of those types of structures. So like, is that a fair characterization as well? Like this idea of like essentialism in the West and, and like dynamism in the East, is that a, a decent yeah, way to think Yeah, I think that distinction is really key. And um, I mean, the way that I look at it is more uh, in terms of, and um, sort of as Terence McKenna said, like um, that you've got sort of stuff and you've got the ways in which stuff relates to other stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and one of the things that got me most excited as, as I sort of did the research for this book is at the same time I was re reading the history, I was looking at modern um, scientific insights. And as you're very familiar with, there's these kind of new sciences of connectivity, if you mm -hmm. will. And you see that in systems thinking, yeah. see that in complexity theory, yeah. see that in systems biology, mm -hmm. uh, chaos theory, all of these different and really rigorous sciences of connectivity look not so much at the stuff, but the connections between things, like network theory, looking at how things relate to each other as being what is sometimes, if not either as important or even more important than what the stuff itself is made out of. Mm -hmm. Looking for universal principles, mm -hmm. so that you see uh, principles of connectivity, say in neurons in the brain, you see in galaxies, and you see in ecosystems, and all around us, and so many things, like fractality is one yes. example, scalability, etc. Yeah. Um, so you see that, and then what I was discovering is uh, in traditional Chinese thought, as it led to the deeper and deeper understanding of this kind of sense of, of connectivity, that web of life, um, around about a thousand years ago, during the Neo-Confucian era, mm -hmm. what's known as the Song Dynasty, mm -hmm. there was this amazing synthesis of three great traditions of thought. There was um, Taoism, which was very much focused on understanding um, the Tao as this kind of mysterious way in which nature manifested in the world. Mm -hmm. um, you had Buddhism, which had become very prevalent in China, mm -hmm. which focused a lot on that recognition of the interdependence of all reality. Mm -hmm. um, and then you had, and also focusing on the practice of using meditation as a way of getting in touch with that. Mm -hmm. And then you had Confucianism, this traditional Chinese way of looking at humans as being deeply embedded in society. Mm -hmm. um, and in the world in that respect. But they fused all of these three things. The, the irony is they thought they were rejecting Taoism and Buddhism and trying to have a renaissance of Confucianism. Mm. But because those traditions were so deep in the culture at that time, they ended up synthesizing these ideas mm -hmm. in what I think is, is a fascinating synthesis, which comes back to what you're describing. Because they saw the whole cosmos as being composed of essentially um, the qi, which you can just translate in modern English as basically matter and or energy. So stuff. Um, and we know that, you know, from Einstein, you can define matter in terms of energy. Right, right, so right. it's not, you know, that's indistinguishable in this way. So you have qi, and then you have li, which can be best uh, translated as the 
principles of organization, mm -hmm. the, orga the principles according to which all those elements of chi relate to each other. Mm -hmm. yeah. So depending on how they relate, they can either be um, atoms like you know, this table, they can uh, be organisms like us, or they, they can be water, or they can be air, all the yeah. different stuff of the universe. Um, and it's the Li that really determines how that chi manifests. Mm -hmm. Tell me if this is a decent interpretation or a decent, um, when I was looking into the idea of Li or first came across it, it was a fairly simple definition and, and you know far more about the history of its evolution. So mm -hmm. I'd love to hear you maybe talk about it a bit, but also for the listeners uh, who don't necessarily have a visual, it's kind of, it's, it's described as, I guess, the pattern you would see the pattern of irregularity in like a jade stone, this idea of right. Lee, this, this, this natural structure that you can tell there's a structure there, but it's not like a rational or crystallized, crystalline structure, regular structure. There's like semi-regularity, yes. like an ordering principle, but it's not obvious. A exactly, yeah. Those were the very earliest references to this notion of Lee, um, or that also was described as like the ways in which um, sort of fields were cultivated or whatever. So mm. these kind of patterns of, uh, of cultivation or whatever like that. So yeah, those are, that's the original um, where that sort of word originally came from. When you say cultivation, um, human cultivation of the land? Yeah. Actually, so they were already yeah. drawing so those were, parallels between um, like deep natural structures and yeah, human Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's kind of interesting to, to see that. Um, but I think um, the, the way in which I like to sort of explain um, the way in which I sort of understand how the Neo-Confucian saw Lee is just to think of something simple like, say, a candle flame. And, you know, when we look at a candle flame, you know, we know that the chi, if you will, the stuff it's comprised of is things like there's the wax that's burning, there, there's the wick, there's the oxygen that's, uh, that's causing this kind of nonsense, and then there's molecules that get very heated, and that forms the flame. So that's the, that's the chi, that's the stuff. But we also see that that flame is relatively stable over mm -hmm. time. You can look at it a few seconds later, you see the same flame. But the molecules in that flame are all different right, right. than they were before. So what is it that makes the flame the same as it was a few seconds earlier? It's yeah. the Li, it's the principles. There's a relatively stable uh, set of interactions between the stuff that makes that stable. And what's so amazing is that we can recognize that's true of ourselves. Like, imagine a photograph of yourself when you were a, a, a little child. And you can look at that picture, and you know that that's you. You know, there's no question about it. But it, it, if, when you realize that most of the cells in that little kid are no longer around, and even there are some cells that stay in us all of our lives, they're continually changing. So you can know for a virtual fact there's not a single molecule in that little child that's in you now. So what connects you with that, with that kid? And the answer is it's the Li, the principles of organization that were forming that organism when you were a little kid remain stable even while the Qi, the stuff that you're made of, is changing and changing. And so in a way, that's where you can see that the, the Li, those principles of organization, in many ways are more important than the actual stuff itself that they're organizing. Mm -hmm. They're the things that actually um, give the coherence mm -hmm. to reality. Mm -hmm. And you see that in ecosystems, mm -hmm. you see that all around. And that's one of the, what I see so, so exciting is that systems thinking in general, in the different ways it's manifested in modern scientific thought, recognizes a lot of that. Mm -hmm. um, when we look at principles of how complex systems uh, self-organize. Mm -hmm. And the fact that these, uh, sages from a thousand years ago 
we're developing these same insights. I mean, one, that's kind of cool just to see that. Totally. But more importantly is to realize that they were using these insights to offer wisdom, mm -hmm. a recognition of how to uh, get in touch with deep spiritual meaning coming right. from these traditions. And it allows us to recognize this possibility that we, from a scientific perspective, if we're looking at the same underlying reality, that means that maybe there is no essential distinction between a scientific and a quote-unquote spiritual mm -hmm. interpretation of life. Mm -hmm. No distinction between um, the underlying insights of modern science and what we hear from traditional wisdom. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these splits that we are led by our modern mainstream re reality to uh, tell us are there in life yeah. may not be there after all. Yeah, reading your book, it's like the snake is eating its tail. It's coming full circle. Mm. That mm -hmm. the initial ideas that were seeded from these ancient sacred texts that have been, you know, passed down throughout the ages, now modern science is coming to the same conclusions. There's actually along those lines, there's something quite interesting that some of your ideas reminded me of with respect to someone else we've talked about. Um, with uh, Wei saying of the fractal brain theory. Mm -hmm. I've been reading his book as well, and he describes, you, you talk a lot about pattern, the patterning instinct, and he also talks a lot about like underlying symmetries and these ideas of, of all living systems as diversifying by breaking symmetries and, and creating all different types of forms that might move down their own path in the world. Um, but then recreating higher levels of symmetry by, by recohering all those parts that previously broke their symmetries. Mm. And so I think kind of what we're talking about in a way is that East and West kind of fragmented and broken initial more holistic symmetry. And now we're starting to see again, the synthesis by way of realizing that there are limitations to each of these modes of being or cultures in isolation. Mm -hmm. So we're yes. kind of reunifying, like we're kind of acting out this metagame that's just a reflection of these same principles. Yeah, I see, I see, I see where you're going on that. And, and that's interesting. Um, and, uh, and at the same time, of course, we don't know really where we're going, because if we look at our modern currents, uh, we do, you know, we're excited by, and so many others around are excited by recognizing these possibilities. And we also see the power of this kind of mainstream yeah. worldview yeah. that is um, basically just going full frontal, destroying uh, so much of the natural world and telling billions of people around the world that that's not the reality. You know, that the reality is consumption and uh, material wealth is what it's about. Mm -hmm. And um, so I do see uh, one of the most important things we can be looking at in today's world is these different currents and and there's this really open question as to what are the ones that will be really determining the future of humanity mm -hmm. because in a way uh one is one will become predominant mm -hmm. and and I, I that's why i think this century is so crucial for mm -hmm. the long-term future of humanity because mm -hmm. we're kind of entering a tipping point but it's not clear which direction we're going in mm -hmm. and if what you're describing does turn out to be the dominant uh, direction that could lead to real hope for human flourishing on this world if we can begin to build a worldview recognizing uh, some of this ancient wisdom connecting with modern scientific interpretation and a place of harmony mm -hmm. um, and at the same time i think we have to be so aware that these other forces uh, really forces of 
uh, destruction mm -hmm. are are so powerful in our world at the same yeah today. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, the destructive nature of that. So there's something that you you speak about um, in terms of the notion of framing natural resources as resources, mm. as opposed to actually, I guess as you put it, realizing the intrinsic value of, of nature or natural systems, or perhaps the intrinsic value of Lee. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of an event we were at recently at the Long Now on, on storytelling and, um, and climate change. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was also very like, data focused, very focused on, on the frames of perhaps resources as opposed to the intrinsic value of nature and this idea of a coherent Lee system. Mm. But if you were telling that story or if you were reframing that story to, to convince people or, or have people connect with this idea of intrinsic value of nature, how would you do that? Or where, where do you see, you know, where, where are good uh, leads to follow from, from the research that you've done and like yeah. bringing that to the forefront of our consciousness? Yeah. These are such profound questions. And um, yeah. And I think just, for starters, talking about stories, um, I mean, one of the stories basically come in a way from these founding metaphors of, of, of making sense of the world that I kind of look at in the book. And in fact, the, bu the book itself is structured according to these core metaphors in which different civilizations in history have made sense of the world. And so looking at our modern world, one of these core metaphors is this notion of nature as a machine. Um, or nature basically as this kind of lifeless resource, as another way uh, of looking at it, from the, those dualistic splits that we were looking at earlier. So a lot of the time, what we see in today's world is that because the, the, where the power resides is in like the big corporate structures or uh, these, and this notion of using nature as a resource in order to get the raw materials to give more consumption for, for humanity. Even a lot of environmentalists who are really focused on trying to save nature from this kind of destructive behavior, they, they sort of get into this mode of, well, we need to uh, relate to these corporate powers. So they've come up with this kind of new metaphor, for example, of nature um, as ecosystem services. And this, the, this sort of light bulb goes off and a lot of people in and uh, ecological and environmental sciences say, well, if we can only point out that these marshlands or this coral reef has this tremendous amount of value, um, then we can get these uh, people making these big corporate or government decisions to, you know, decide to maintain them rather than destroy them. Uh, which is very well-meaning, but the danger yeah, to put that a number on it. is that exactly like you basically create these core metaphor that and everything can be become part of this kind of market reality that the world itself is nothing other than this gigantic market and you can just decide what's more valuable than not. So then if, if you say this coral reef is worth, you know, a hundred million dollars. And then somebody else can come along and say, yeah, but I can build this resort in this area for, and I can, it's got a value of $200 million, so screw the coral reef, let's just uh, get going. And, and, that's, and that's the problem. Or like, you know, when you look at climate change and the fact that the Arctic is going to melt um, in our generation, uh, then you get all these oil companies going, well, that's great because now we can, you know, we can mine for, uh, for the oil up, uh, up there that we couldn't have reached before. So 
there's a real danger to that. And so I do feel you have to get back to this notion of a different way of valuing nature. Um, and the way to really look at that notion of intrinsic value is to recognize that we ourselves are nature. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like the, this is core mistake of us being separate from nature. Mm -hmm. We are nature. Mm -hmm. The only ways in which we as, as human beings can thrive uh, and flourish is by being on a world that is flourishing, mm -hmm. by being in a, we, because we are interconnected mm -hmm. and the very air we breathe, the food that we eat, everything around us, the sense of meaning we get arises from our place in the natural world. Mm -hmm. Anyone who's ever been for a walk in nature knows that feeling you get when you start to look around you and feel what you're connected with. Mm -hmm. And and it's not just sort of then nature as this kind of aesthetic uh, environment that's there for us, but it's the recognition that nature exists inside, inside us, mm -hmm. um, the microbes that exist mm -hmm. within us are part of nature. And we can't have any kind of meaningful existence without recognizing that we're part of that interconnected web mm -hmm. of what I call web of meaning. Mm -hmm. And so that's a different way of looking at really how to make sense of all of the stuff. So when we look at protecting nature uh, or protecting uh, natural ecosystems from destruction, we begin to realize that it's not a matter of how much can they be valued at in some marketplace, but their intrinsic worth. And in fact, the, as soon as we try to apply dollar cost on those things, we, we get away from that core recognition. Yeah. When I think about how we can start to change the future, we have to start with ourselves, of course. And like you said, we are nature. And so a lot of these philosophies, what's beautiful, what's so beautiful about them for me is that Taoism, for me personally, I see the world Taoistically. You know, like I just see it, how these yin and yang, these polarities exist, this uh, explicit duality within an implicit unity. But then within myself, I see this as well. And so I feel like I am nature as I understand nature. And so it's like this as above, so below, as within, so without type of model mm -hmm. that enables us. It's where Buddhism and these other contemplative practices become important because we can actually transform our inner experience. Our spiritual journey begins every breath we take. Mm. And so when I think about the world that, oh, it's so chaotic, there's so many things, there's such inertia headed down the wrong path. Well, there's also this Zen notion of you can wake up like that and we can do that all together. And so these philosophies enable us to experience that in our own felt presence. And if we can all experience that ourselves and then share that experience with each other, it enables a new collective body that when we can tap into and we can feel there is there's this web of meaning there's this abundant sense of connection of oneness that's so beautiful so transformational that no materialist consumptive type of thing you might be reaching for can compare it to you can compare it to yes i think that's so true and that's what you're describing is what gives me uh, reason to feel hope mm -hmm. even in this really kind of dark time we're in right now mm -hmm. and even looking at some of these forces of destruction we see all around us mm -hmm. and you know to me a lot of that hope comes from looking at what you're describing this possibility for each of us to wake up and also recognizing that and the, in just about virtually every human being uh, in the world today 
And there is this core sense of this connectedness, mm -hmm. this desire to connect, this desire to feel um, at home with community, at home with others, at home in, in the natural world. And, you know, we're told from the sort of mainstream media and modern reductionist scientists that basically humans are individualistic, they're selfish, um, that they're separate from each other, we're separate even from ourselves, mind and body, and the humans are separate from nature, all these senses of separations. And in fact, this is just all part of the modern myth that arose with the scientific revolution. And in fact, what I found so fascinating when cognitive scientists and, and evolutionary biologists look at what makes humans really uh, unique among other primates, for example, is that we, we evolved to be with each other in community. We evolved to actually recognize our connectedness mm -hmm. with what was around us. Mm -hmm. and. That's why it's, there's a strong drive in every human being for empathy, for compassion, for a sense of brotherhood and sisterhood, a sense of family, a sense of kinship. Mm -hmm. But we've, we're sort of hypnotized from media from the very youngest years as we grow up mm -hmm. to be told that's not what we're really about, mm -hmm. that we're really about these other places of consuming and being separate and status, etc. But the reason that that gives us hope is that it's there in all of us. And I think that we see nowadays, as our world gets to be more and more imbalanced, and um, these crazy inequalities and this, this rampaging destruction of nature is taking place, more and more people are waking up to that. And some will wake up through a path like Zen or a path like meditation. Others can simply wake up through their heartfelt recognition of, I'm just not going to accept this crap. Yeah. There's something wrong here. I'm going to do something about it. And they realize that others are like that. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what gives me real profound hope for the possibilities. There's this um, environmentalist, Paul Hawken, I mentioned in, in the book, mm -hmm. who wrote a book called Blessed Unrest some years ago, looking at this the number of movements around in the world right now of uh, just small organizations and big organizations, but he was counting probably more than a million, even at that time, different organizations of people getting together to essentially fight for life against a society that is uh, one bent on destruction. And he sees that as the really probably the biggest social movement in all of history. And that's what we're part of. And that's what we're part of right now as we're talking. And so many of us in the different things we're doing are recognizing that and waking up mm -hmm. and saying, you know, we can make a difference. Mm -hmm. And that difference arises from the connectivity. Mm -hmm. Because as we understand from systems re um, recognition, it's like it's the, the network, the power of the network is a function of the square of the connections within that network, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which means that the more that we're recognizing our connections with other people and what they're doing, and that what my theme relating to your theme, how they relate to each other and how they can build on each other, that's what gives the whole uh, movement for life basically mm -hmm, power. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Talking a little bit about that, you know, the, the connection between change, evolution, and, and the structures that also are kind of inertial or that, that keep the previous world um, reviv revivifying itself continuously mm -hmm. and how we perhaps transform that. I'm, I'm interested in a couple things, and, and maybe this can serve to tie a few of the themes we've talked about together. 
Um, so we are in a space that's a, effectively a decentralization or blockchain co-working space, Starship mission here, or Starfish mission, Starship, Starship, <laughs> like Starship that. Earth, <laughs> perhaps it is a Starship too. Um, but so something, just to kind of go to the base level of this conversation, some, like a topic that you, or a concept that you use that really struck me is this idea of humanity crossing the metaphorical threshold. Mm -hmm. So the idea that we were able to begin operating not just in the reality of action, but also at a level of abstraction using symbols to represent reality. And as soon as you kind of make that split, then you're playing two games in a way. And then there's a relationship between those two games, which is also kind of related to the idea of culture shaping the values Mm -hmm. and, and quite concretely tied to the story and this is something i've been exploring a lot and writing about which is like the story of how the tokens of our value came to be and what the implications of of those tokens and like what they represent are so like our monetary tokens and what they are capable of representing about our values in our society or our coherence or our lee or or what they're not capable Mm -hmm. and and i think most of the things i just listed they're actually not very capable and so do you think that some of the things that we've just been discussing can be encoded in new forms of value representation to better facilitate value flows through complex systems that are that are uh, m- more in service of the the reality of both um, survival and coherence? Uh, or do you think that this this is something that as soon as you start encoding it into some monetary system, you're already on the wrong path. Like, where, where's yeah, your insight yeah, I there? Get what I, I think I understand where you're coming from. And, you know, I think that um, the question, I mean, one question that I've pondered a lot is, you know, is there really some sense of um, intrinsic value that can be um, recognized from our symbolic thought process? So I think it's kind of another way of looking at, at, at what you're saying. And um, as I look at... Uh, where intrinsic value comes from. If we think in terms of Lee, this notion of connectivity, or we think in terms of modern systems thinking, um, that it's, we, it's not just, there's value not just in connection itself, but it's the form in which things connect, this complex integrated form in which things connect. So for, like, I'll give you some examples. Like, imagine at one extreme, uh, you can have complete non-connection. Like imagine sort of just smoke particles and they're and Brownian motion that they're just kind of randomly moving around. The chaos. Kind of each, each unconne- unconnected with each other. Yeah. But then imagine another extreme of say ice mm-hmm. in crystalline form where you could say they're strongly connected. Everything, you know, there's this really, yeah. really tight connection, but it's a very simple kind of connection. Yeah. It's crystalline. It, there, there's nothing, it, it doesn't sort of move much. And then there's something in between. And if you think of this kind of place where um, that sort of crystalline softens and a place where the kind of smoke particles begin to form in in sort of more meaning, there's that place in between that a complexity scientist, Stuart Kaufman, Mm -hmm. uh, really looks at. That's where we can see the emergence of life. The edge of chaos. The edge of chaos, exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, if you look at, say, how the brain works, and people who have looked at the networks of the brain, it's between those two. It's not like it's completely, um, everything is connected in this fragmented way, and it's not really fixed, but it's this notion of a complex integrated 
um, coherent set of connections. And I think the word integration is key mm -hmm. in recognizing this. They're connected in a way where the, it's more and more integrated. And in fact, there's, um, there are some neuroscientists who think that they, the way to understand consciousness is a, a measure that they call phi, which yeah, is really this yeah. measure of integrated connectedness. Yeah, yeah, Christoph um, Koch. Exactly, and, uh, you, yeah. you, you got it, totally. Yeah. Um, and um, actually, uh, Tononi, Julia yeah, Tononi so is the one who... Was, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Francis um, Crick was working with them as well. Uh, yeah, he did originally, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but I think it's Tononi who is the Tononi one who, who is, who's right. come up with this uh, notion of five. Yeah. So the reason, and this, it's kind of a long way to come back to your question, because then as I look at... Um, complexity itself, if we look at the, why is life valuable? Why do we feel that there's value in life? Well, I think ultimately it's because of the complex way in which it interacts with each other. So if we just think of, and, and, and you know, we actually see that even in aesthetics, um, when people look at different landscapes, um, you can have a landscape that's really, really busy um, and like filled with forest. You can have a landscape that's desert. You can have a more like a savanna uh, kind of landscape. And people move towards the savanna landscape, this notion of biophilia or whatever, mm -hmm. because th there's a certain um, level of uh, of fractality, basically, of, of yeah. complexity in that in a, a certain vision that feels right to us. Mm. And I think that relates to a lot to what is the un the fundamental. Uh, I want to say essence, but it's more like the fundamental dynamics that lead to life. Um, and I think if we take that as a notion of value, we can almost recognize, we can come up with some sense of what I almost think of as, um, the, you could think of it like a Lee quotient, mm. or the yes. complexity or integrative quotient mm -hmm. of, um, is there, um, if, the, if that number is higher, if that quotient is higher, then there's more intrinsic value in something. If it's lower, there's less intrinsic value. So if you look at an ecosystem, and um, somebody says, "Well, I can mine the you know resources out of that ecosystem; it'll destroy the life." So you gain from some amount of those resources you gain, and what you lose is this complexity of that ecosystem. Yeah. So when you're measuring intrinsic value from that kind of sense it's pretty clear that you're losing more than you're yeah. gaining. It's like a conservation. I think what you're getting at or what I'm hearing is like a conservation of, of like a dynamic potential. Or right. like maintaining the system's potential to constantly transform and, and sustain itself and, and generate new forms of adap adaptive life yes. or patterns. Exactly. And and I think what's so important about that is that it it looks at the potential role for technology mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. a thriving future. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the time, I mean, the way we see technology manifested a lot in today's world is in this form of kind of, um, it's almost like a complexity reducing technology, even though it looks, incredibly, it, it, yeah, it looks incredibly complicated, but complicated is different from complex. So mm. um, we have a technology, a, a, a lot of technology works to essentially create more separations, separations between humans or um, separating humans from nature or all the different ways in which technology works today. Or it, it works by sort of breaking things down into bits um, and, and then uh, sort of reconstituting them. But we can imagine technology also working in ways that can lead further to integration. And um, so even th you know, things like AI can be um, developed in ways that lead to 
a, a separation between things and a reduction in that core intrinsic value, or potentially could work to enhance the intrinsic Absolutely. value of life. Yeah. And so I think it's important, you know, when we look at, uh, there are, there's sort of some groups of environmentalist oriented people who just see technology as intrinsically bad uh, with good reason because it's done so much damage over centuries. But it's also possible to see technology as, in fact, that's really the greatest challenge uh, for those developing at the cutting edges of technology. How can we actually think about technology in a way that increases that complexity, mm -hmm. that enhances life mm. rather than works against life? That's so key because, you know, in complexity science, one of the key themes is these attractor states that systems are driving right. themselves towards. Exactly. And right now, the attractor states that we operate under are primarily like GDP. Is yes. something that we use that, as, Ken, mm -hmm. as Robert Kennedy mentioned, measures everything but that which makes life worthwhile. Right. And you exactly. have a country like Bhutan that now has the Gross National Happiness Index that, right. that helps them make their decisions. Mm -hmm. But this idea of a quantifiably or some way to gauge the level of patterning within the ecosystems of life. And so it brings me back to, um, which is also mentioned in your book, the Gaia principle that James Lovelock and Lynn Margolis put forward in like the late 60s right. that has continued to see like, yeah, this is what it is. It's like this is this planet that is ecosystems on top of ecosystems, everything interconnected. And for us trying to wrestle with the 21st century, the future of our world, it seems like having some way to measure our activity in this planet with respect to this web of life, these reverberations across ecosystems is so essential. Um, I yes. wonder that, that that's like a that's a project that we need to like collectively come together and do that. Like seems to me could help catalyze um, a new paradigm of sorts. Yes, I I so agree with this. In fact, this is um, I'm kind of smiling because it's something I've been talking with people about and thinking about a lot myself is this you know um a lot of the time as humans in society we um we get what we measure mm -hmm. so if you measure you know if you're in, in a company and you say we're going to increase revenues i'm going to measure people on revenues revenues go up they say we're going to focus on profits rather than revenues suddenly profits go up because people start acting in different ways so as countries uh, we we are obsessed by this notion of GDP, yeah. which, just as you say, measures nothing other than the rate at which we're monetizing natural the natural world and human activity and bringing it yeah. into the financial economy. That's all that all it measures. So we get that, and that's what we're doing. So the thing is, how can we come up with a measurement mm -hmm. that? Um, on a quarterly basis, we can be looking at it and saying, um, well, okay, GDP went up uh, in this country, but this other measurement actually went down. Or conversely, GDP might have gone down in this country, but their actual happiness index or whatever went up. And um, well, to, the, to that point, uh, there's this fabulous book by, um, written by somebody called Kate Rayworth, an English economist called Donut Economics, mm -hmm. which does a great job of offering a different kind of platform for thinking about these things. And the, what she describes, the reason it's called a donut, is that this, it, it, like imagine uh, a shape of a donut, um, and the inner part of the donut represents the bare minimum that's required for humans to live a normal and flourishing life. So deals with things like sort of access to food, um, home security, 
and those basic things, and which obviously billions of people in today's world are below that level. Um, and then the outer part of that donut um, looks at the ways in which we can live within uh, the sustainability of our biosphere. And um, you may be familiar with a paper that's come out the last few years that looks at different dimensions of whether we're living within the sort of mm -hmm. guardrails of society. Mm -hmm. And there's uh, out of about seven, either seven or nine dimensions, like there's three or four that we're totally out yeah. of those bounds. Um, but so you can fit this into like a measurement routine and saying really what to optimize our chances for human flourishing, we need to on the outside of the donut, we need to bring ourselves in. Mm -hmm. And within the inner part of the donut, we need to expand so people, all people everywhere can lead, uh, have the basics for a flourishing life. Mm -hmm. And that's what it, it's about. And you can actually measure those things. And mm -hmm. so- I've Which been, is a coherent uh, state. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. So I'm, I, I've been kind of exploring with one or two people, uh, what, what can be done to actually uh, look at that kind of measurement. Yeah, amazing. I have two. Like I call it the global indicators of well-being. Um, that I've been like this to me is such an important thing that we need to do. So yeah, it's great to hear that you've been working on that too. This is like a collective thing that we need to yes. agree upon. Yeah. Um, we're, gonna, we're gonna catalyze more voices. Perhaps yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, um, for sure. Yeah, and in fact, um, there's uh, somebody called Mathis Wackenagel. I'm not mm. sure if I'm pronouncing his last name right, but um, he's actually uh, just been putting out recently a fabulous website that looks at like the more like the focusing on those outer bounds, right. um, where each country is, and on an ongoing measurement of where where we stand in mm -hmm. relation to those sort of sustainability functions. Yeah, and, and it will yes. be an emergent coherence, right? Yes. So like a lot of these things is it like if we were to try to top down structure this, it wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. it has it to be, we got to get buy in. It requires bottom well. this bottom up community to say like emerge through or you know to have the order emerge through chaos. Definitely. Well, also speaking of order and chaos, and you know, you play in the space of, of culture and and the stories that shape our values and the evolution of, of like religion and philosophy and meaning. And so, you know, there's another person in the zeitgeist who who plays in that space who's very popular right now, who's kind of touched on some of our work, but his name's Jordan Peterson. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard of him or seen his work. I'm curious in terms of you know, there's a lot of overlap in the topics that you cover. I'm sure you also perceive differences between your your perspective and his perspective. Um, I'd be really interested to hear what your take is on, on his work and how he's addressing these topics and, and where you may um, where you may agree and where you may disagree mm. with with kind of his uh, program, so to speak. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm certainly not an expert on his work. I haven't read any of his books. Mm. Um, uh, so I know more than anything um, about how he's perceived right now in popular mm. culture. Sure. Um, and uh, my my basic understanding is that he represents a, a very dangerous trend in the ways of relating to meaning and um, and relating to kind of values in our culture right now. So um, it seems that he speaks primarily to a particular. Um, group of people within our society who are feeling that they have been sort of left out of where society is moving, and particularly seems to speak to um, uh, white males in our society who feel that they're getting left out of this kind of um, evolution of sort of social complexity or whatever. And uh, I, my own sense is that 
he is offering um, solutions that are more about separation, that they actually exacerbate the kind of tribalism that is such a dangerous and uh, prevalence in our society today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I get very uncomfortable with some of the values that he's, um, he's putting out there and some of the um, ways in which uh, really a, sub, a subgroup of people who have been the most powerful group within modern history, essentially, the sort of um, the white Anglo-Saxon male, if you will, um, who were beginning to feel some of that empowerment slipping as other parts of humanity get to um, get heard more and get to have more of their place, feeling uh, aggrieved and wanting to grab back some of the power that they have been enjoying for so many centuries. Mm-hmm. And my, my approach um, is the opposite of that. M- my sense is that we actually, and I'm a white Anglo-Saxon male, and so um, as, I, as I, y- y- you both, I'm assuming, and so we, we, are, we are in that place of relative social and political power. And I think um, the greatest way for us to actually be more empowered and to be able to flourish the most in the world is to embrace the diversity um, and to bring up those ethnic groups who have been disempowered in the past mm-hmm. and to actually um, to, to share that place of power with other mm-hmm. groups around us mm-hmm. is to actually make the whole space bigger. Mm-hmm. So that there's no zero-sum game. We're not oh, yeah. losing anything by bringing up other ethnic groups. We're actually all gaining. Mm-hmm. And that, that's r- from this recognition of the interconnectedness mm-hmm. of things. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we begin to see things in terms of a zero-sum game, we all lose. As soon as we get to recognize the empowerment of others is the empowerment of ourselves, we have the opportunity for a, a much more flourishing world. Hmm. Yeah, I think I, I definitely, I, I very much agree with your sentiment um, and your characterization of, of the way the world should uh, kind of evolve in terms of us being able to incorporate all of what everyone has to offer and therefore create a better world for, for everyone who's trying to fulfill their potential in this world. Mm-hmm. I think it is interesting um, one of the reasons I asked that is, is I've also noticed that, so I came across his work before he was kind of thrust into the mm. public limelight. Mm-hmm. And um, the earlier stuff, especially Maps of Meaning and his, his lectures, um, I think, I don't know, I'd be interested to hear what you, what you thought of them if, if you were exposed to, to the work, mm-hmm. as opposed to kind of the, the metagame that's emerged around right. him. Because yes. there, there's, there's a lot of heat, there's a lot of friction, and there is definitely that narrative and that story in the culture right now about him appealing specifically to this demographic of disenfranchised white males. Um, that said, I mean, I know he doesn't see himself that way and he tries not to be that he's like more individualistic, um, in his, in his, the idea of creating strong individuals that can emerge into more coherent collectives, um, whatever the group identities might be, mm-hmm. um, but dips deeply into the mythopoetic domain to try to paint the landscape. That being said, the way he does so is far more informed, while it's informed by East and West, I think is far more informed by West. And he does see, in many ways, has said that the, the kind of Christian paradigm 
is in a way like the apotheosis of, of this um, embodiment or incarnation of um, the kind of uh, evolution of spirituality as a landscape of meaning. And I think that's probably where you guys would, would differ mostly in terms of um, perhaps you perceiving far more deep wisdom and refinement in the neo-confucian perspective that um that is a far less hierarchical structure so to speak well yes but also to clarify again just like we were touching on earlier yeah. in the conversation um i want to make sure that we don't get caught up in sort of golden ageism yeah. uh, of the neo-confucian perspective that sure. was a hugely hierarchical society yeah. that these ideas came from and i think um my primary interest is in looking forward and looking at where we, where, yeah. what kind of wisdom can we gain from these insights from other cultures, yeah. recognizing, you know, one of the dangers is that there are so many uh, sort of worldviews, and whether it's a Jordan Peterson looking at the apotheosis in Western uh, sort of Christianity or whatever, or even um, you see that in integral theory with uh, where Wilbur, um, Ken, yeah. Wilbur puts these great, uh, yeah, these like, complex ideas together. But in so many ways, you often get white males who look at all of history as essentially culminating in the greatest wisdom of their own, their <laughs> own interpretation of the world, mm. you know? Um, and I think we have to be really, really careful and watch out for that. And, you know, again, I speak as a white male recognizing yeah, yeah, yeah. that. Yeah. But, um, but I think we have to recognize that the, the real um, development is, is to actually integrate with these different strands of meaning all around us and yeah. the ways in which um, we can celebrate differences, mm -hmm. um, celebrate diverse ways of even finding meaning as part of an, an overall sort of meta meaning. Mm -hmm. yeah. That I think allows us to move yeah. forward in the, with the best wisdom. Yeah, it seems so important to be able to have the conversation at a granular level, right? To be able to look at the history of both our culture and other cultures and say, you know, that's, that's given us a lot, but it's also ha it also has a lot of downsides right. that are potentially exactly. hurting people or destroying the world in this way or that while they are also providing a high quality of living, how do we look at integrating that with other perspectives so that we can ideally continue improving the quality of living for as many people as possible, everyone yes. ideally, while tamping down the negative sides, the externalities, the destruction of the, you know, the earth, nature, right. um, the, I guess, um, lack of access to opportunity for mm -hmm. much of the world's population, the lack of uh, ability for many people to fulfill their potential. I mean, I guess like when people ask me like what my vision is for the world, it's like a world in which everyone has the opportunity to fulfill their potential, right? Or to pursue the fulfillment yes. of their potential. Yes, exactly. Um, in a coherent manner. Exactly. Um, and, you know, and if I could just sort of add a layer on top of that, yeah. um, it's also recognizing that once we begin to define our personness, our personhood, not just as individuals, but as being part of the em emergent community of life with others and, and, and the world around us. So to take that first thing you said of everyone having the potential to fulfill or to having the ability to fulfill their potential to the maximum and also for their ability as part of their community to mm -hmm. fulfill their community's potential yeah. to the maximum and as part of flourishing on the natural world to fulfill the whole natural Gaia system as you were referring yeah. to. to its so re realizing yeah. that our very identity is fractal. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and that I think is one of the key transformative ways in which we can, uh, which we can move forward. Yeah. Totally. 
start with like building the strong self and then building the strong community and then building the strong society and then, or not strong is probably and, the right yeah. word. Balance might be a better word. Yeah, or flourishing. Coherent, yeah. flourishing, vibrant, and, and, and the recognition that it's not even building first within ourselves, but it's this notion of reciprocal causality. That yeah. This great philosopher yeah. that Evan Thompson talks about. Yeah. Um, the co-creation. Is, yeah, is that while we're working on creating a flourishing world, and creating a flourishing community and creating a flourishing uh, being within ourselves, those things work with each other. Yeah. So to work, focus to focus our work on just one of those at the expense of the other two You're is to lead. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Is mm. to lead to an imbalance at some yeah. place. Yeah. And of course, at some times in our life, we might feel a particular need to be in community or need to work on something in ourselves, and and that's great to listen to that. But as only um, it really at some point we'll recognize then if if we're truly growing that those things are interconnected, mm-hmm. and you can't you know somebody who's truly spiritually awakened in this world today, um, and but who ignores the destruction that's going on in our, in our world around us and the suffering other humans are experiencing right now is not truly spiritually awakened. Mm-hmm. You can't be truly awakened without that recognition of um, of what's going on around and each of our parts in that. Mm-hmm. That the very luxury we have to sit here today and use technology to talk together um, has only arisen um, out of these imbalances that are causing billions of people in the world right now to be living on a dollar or two a day and suffering hugely and yeah. barely able to you know, eat enough to even uh, maintain life. Right. And recognizing that those, we, part of that interconnected web of life is to recognize those things and not to then fall into a, a sort of whirlpool of guilt and feel paralyzed, but to recognize that that means that having the, that luxury that we have also gives us a responsibility to try to make the world a place that offers more to everyone around us. Right. And in your book, and we're sort of running up on time here, so we'll try to wind down, but you close with looking into the future. Mm -hmm. Um, We tell this whole story of humanity and and how we've gotten to now and and what this now is in the context of like where we think we're going. And, you know, there's this idea of the technological singularity that some folks around these towns that we inhabit here in San Francisco and the Bay Area talk about. And, and all around the world, people are, are, you know, there's transhumanists. There's people that, um, you know, not incorrectly perceive our relationship with technology as this sort of cyborg relationship. I would argue that we've always been like that mm-hmm. from the very invention of language itself to the tools that helped us hunt. We've always been using technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is this grandiose vision of like, where are we going and what right. could be coming? Um, can you speak to that at all? What are, what are your thoughts on, on where we are, where we're going? I know that's a very large question, but mm-hmm. you know we are. We're talking about the biggest yeah. questions that are. Tell us yeah. the future. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And well, and, as you say, that final chapter of the book is called "Trajectories to Our Future," um, and. I think, yeah, the first thing to recognize is that wherever we're going is not predetermined. We can't actually predict where we're going, but we can look at certain uh, possible trajectories which move in very different directions. So there is this one notion of continued technological um, growth. And that's, I find interesting, and I'd like to come back to that, if you will. But let's sort of, um, viewing that as one notion of some sort of uh, singularity type uh, approach that we're headed to, um, there's also this, uh, ex- at the other extreme, 
there's this uh, possibility of collapse, uh, of this recognition that actually the ways in which we're consuming the earth at far too rapid a rate, mm-hmm. totally unsustainably, mm-hmm. um, is unless something shifts yeah. over the next couple of generations, it, and it could lead to the very, the, our civilization is built on a ton of very complex networks that are that don't have much redundancy right. built into them. Just to interject real quickly, so as I mentioned, I was at Singularity University in 2012, they're talking about a singularity, but then at the Santa Fe Institute, one of my favorite researchers there, right. Jeffrey West, he talks yes. about singularity as well, but his yeah. singularity is environmental collapse. Yes, I'm, I'm so glad you, you're reading Jeffrey West. His oh, book yeah. Scale yeah, is amazing. one of the most profound, brilliant totally. books yeah, uh, written in recent years. Yeah, I did some work at Santa Fe Institute. We're a big yeah. fan of the work they're doing. Yeah, that, Scale that is, is that another is e- critical read yeah. to, exactly. to get a grasp of the exactly. world. And the concept yeah. between both of those singularities mm-hmm. as well is this notion of acceleration towards a point that is, is kind of unknowable, yeah. but but also unavoidable in some context. But it's like, what is that point? What are we accelerating towards? Yes. And in which direction are we accelerating? Exactly. Which circles back yeah. to your idea of tra- trajectories. Yeah, so, and, and I, I think that's right. And, and, and like Jeffrey West in his final chapter of his book does, does a, such a great description of, from a physics point of view, just recognizing the unsustainability of, mm-hmm. of where we're headed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's brilliant. Um, but I, you know, one of the things I think people don't talk about as much as we should is this notion of what I call techno split. Mm-hmm. And it's this, um, you can sort of get this idea, but when you look at this unsustainable path we're on and you look at people in power, um, both financial power and political power around the world, not doing anything about it, and you ask why, um, I think one of the reasons why is because what a lot of these people say to themselves, either consciously or just kind of unconsciously, is, well, it's not going to happen to us. You know, it'll happen if things collapse. You know, we'll almost like this notion of a fortress yeah. Earth future. Like every other large scale civilization yeah. has collapsed eventually, but, but it won't happen uh, well, to us. But their, their way of thinking, well, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe billions of people will sort of fall into this kind of, you know, climate change and everything else disasters. But as long as we can, um, I mean, and, Yeah, there's some validity to this. If you look, for example, at, um, say, Central Africa, which is really has been essentially in a state of collapse Mm -hmm. for decades, um, where you have childhood slavery, mass rapes, continual warfare, just utter devastation. And yet, because of that very notion, because of the desperation, um, there are people working as slaves, uh, mining the rare earths or the diamonds or gold that becomes part of our modern technological civilization. So you know, the, that's part of what I mean by techno split. The, I think uh, there's this scenario where for the affluent few in the world, uh, civilization continues and we explore new ways of being human through cyborg possibilities and a greater, greater degree of uh, interconnectedness, even genetic enhancements, everything else. And meanwhile, billions of people really become the underclass dealing with the, the real collapse of humanity um, for themselves. And I think the reason I feel that's important is I think that a lot of people kind of feel that's where things are going, but when they're the, in the affluent world, able to do something about it, they don't feel quite as urgent a need because they sort of figure they and their kids will be one of the ones that will be okay. And, and that's a massive moral responsibility. Like if you buy into this um, definition of humanity 
as uh, um, and the sense of universal human rights and as a brotherhood and sisterhood of shared and th just like you were describing before that every every human being should have this potential for really or have the ability to really pursue that potential then that is an absolute disgrace that we're moving in that direction mm -hmm. um, but I think that's something for us to be aware of because unless we do something about it we may be moving in that direction mm -hmm. is is the point mm -hmm. um, and that direction if if we can is there a way to pursue a an advanced technological society that is available for all human beings and I believe the answer is yes but only by really trying to reorient technology to working for humanity as a whole right. and working for the natural systems as a whole right. not working instead of right. so you know when we look at the death of the mass death of pollinators um, through uh, the um, pollution that we're putting out there and then um, technological solutions come up with well let's just make these micro drones that can mm -hmm. just pollinate I mean that's a way in which technology is being used for the destruction of the planet but maintaining this kind of techno split mm -hmm. uh, scenario the question can we use uh, technology in ways that allow us to repopulate the earth with life right um, and I think the answer is yes, but that's a that's a more of a challenge. Mm -hmm. yeah. In service of life, in service of creating more life, in yes. service of creating um, higher quality life for as many different types of life that yeah. that, exactly. that might exist now or in the future. Exactly. Um, yeah. And I and I think that the question to ask when we're looking at you know any new technology, how how are we looking at it? Is this question is it serving life? Mm. Coming back to some of these questions we were looking at earlier, what is a, a measurement of true yeah. value and so is it allowing for greater integration greater complexity of the natural systems yeah. that we're part of or is it reducing the that level of complexity i think mm -hmm. those are the questions we should be asking mm -hmm. yeah i think and a lot of the answers at least i think all of us in this room probably believe that many of them lie within this intersection of, of understanding our own nature our own I guess what we call biology mm -hmm. is this kind of physical inertia that we have that there's almost like a thrownness to it where mm -hmm. we can't escape it. We have to deal with it. And then also these other layers we built on top of it, our culture, our stories, our value systems, the way we represent it, the way we communicate it, the way we transact it. Mm -hmm. And and how, so I guess in your mind, I'm curious to hear, um, I guess we're, we, we're probably, we should probably wrap up here pretty soon, but um, this notion of, of, the biological versus the cultural or the biological and the cultural the yeah. relationship between the two that's like obviously a hot topic and also right technology now. as biology i mean yeah. kevin kelly talks about it as the seventh kingdom of life people don't see it in that lens and yeah. they ought to see it more in this sort of continuum of life on different scales yeah and like there's so there's the idea of like of derrida which is like there's nothing outside the text which is what he's most mm. famous for right this yes. idea that which is kind of the extreme version of there is nothing outside the cultural frame of reference. Yes. That being said, like I, I have a very hard time digesting a statement like that because once again, it's it's the the I am therefore I think as well, right? Because yeah. like there is a biological element. We are a part of the life process, yes. and the exactly. life process began before the text. Right. Yeah. I I think this is in a way it comes down to this core notion of what makes us as humans different from other natural organisms in the world and it would, and which comes back a lot to some of the notions of Taoism that you were referring to earlier mm -hmm. so I'll 
I'll sort of explain how I'm sort of weaving these in. That, yeah. if you will, um, what the uh, what the sort of um, Taoists, uh, such as in the Tao Te Ching and uh, Chuangzi, who is mm-hmm. this brilliant Taoist yeah. philosopher, um, what, when when they look at what Taoism means, it's essentially or where or the human role within Taoism. Um, it's essentially the sense that what we want to do is to get back in touch with our sort of um, true nature, if you will. And our true nature is, um, in that sense, is being part of the natural world. And they have this, this concept of wu-wei, which is to, it's, or effortless action, yeah. or acting without putting our conscious awareness into things. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the, the, the dilemma comes that when, in fact, the Taoists saw the rise of language as the beginning of the separation from the Tao. Mm-hmm. And then they saw culture and civilization as separating humans from the Tao, and that's the great loss. So while the Greeks, on the one hand, were celebrating reason as the great thing that makes us divine, the Taoists, at the same time, were looking at the growth of reason and language as what separated us from the Tao. Mm-hmm. So th- this is the kind of paradox, if you will, mm-hmm. that as humans, we, it's like it's as though we develop a different layer of consciousness. Um, so if you can think of animate consciousness as being a consciousness that all creatures share, maybe from as small as a single cell organism to um, any other mammal, it's this consciousness of, of, of being connected, of recognizing um, a certain membrane between us and the world and, and, and having some sense of awareness. And then as humans, we develop this symbolic consciousness. Um, as you say, we became sort of cyborgs, essentially, with language. Yeah. Um, yeah. When we developed a different way of being in the of of conceiving of the world, yeah. which gave us it was what I call a patterning instinct, mm-hmm. uh, which is this uniquely human. Not that other animals don't have a patterning instinct, but we have it to a uniquely great degree, mm-hmm. um, which then leads to language, leads to culture, leads to technology, mm-hmm. leads to the imbalances we have in the world. So that even hunter gatherers who saw themselves as being totally part of nature and nature being like this giving mother and father they led to some of the greatest extinctions in all of um, the earth's history when they went from africa to the americas or to australia because they had this power of tall creation um, that gave them this amazing power to create these imbalances with with the natural world as it was before them so as humans the that's where, where, in a way, I sort of part company with pure Taoism because they did have the sense of a golden age before language, before all, all this stuff. And that's where things like Neo-Confucianism uh, gets to be so exciting and our ability to forge something new in, uh, as we look forward. Mm-hmm. To recognize that as humans, there's no going back. We can't sort of undo our conceptual consciousness, and we don't want to. There are so many wonderful things that we gain from this ability to see the world in this conceptual way as well as in this animal way. And that's why I feel the way forward is really a way of integration. It's a way of truly exploring how to integrate that conceptual consciousness, the one that leads to technology, to culture, to our, essentially that causes us to be somewhat separate from the natural world and to integrate that with our animate consciousness, that sense that yes, we as humans, we are nature, nature is all around us. Um, and it's through exploring that place of integration, I think, that we have the potential for a truly sustainable flourishing future for humans on the earth.
Thank you so much for that. Entirely That's, on board with that. Yeah. yeah um, sure. <laughs> I wanted to close with this passage that actually is quite uh, poetically describing integration. Where, where did you find this, by the way? I, I, it's the first time I had come across it. Oh, the, uh, you're saying that uh, um, Western inscription by Chang Tsai? Or, yes, uh, Chang Tsai. Um, well, really, through my research of uh, Neo-Confucian thought and when I came across it, I mean, what's interesting is we in the West virtually nobody has ever heard this quote yeah. but in, in in traditional Chinese thought it's an icon uh. I mean it's almost as important as Descartes saying I think therefore I am it's a, <laughs> it's called the Western inscription and it's one of the great classic statements of Chinese civilization yeah and so uh, yeah. we'll close with this it is really uh, it's beautiful so it goes heaven is my father and earth is my mother and I, a small child, find myself placed intimately between them. What fills the universe I regard as my body, what directs the universe I regard as my nature. All people are my brothers and sisters, all things are my companions. And so I say yes to that. Yeah. And I say thank you so much for joining us today, for the folks listening. Spread the message. We are all connected into this web of life of meaning that we're creating together and it's works like this which i truly believe is a perennial piece of work that you've created mm -hmm. here go get this book you'll you'll learn a ton the patterning instinct jeremy lent thank you so much for joining us today uh, and thank you to you both for this great conversation and for the work that you're doing i i think it's so important and great that you're doing it thank, thank you, you so much thank you for being here with us to catalyze coherence and namaste if, if anyone friends. listening wants to help facilitate that uh patreon.com slash coherence <laughs> is our uh is our place where we're basically putting out the putting out the the hat so, so please <laughs> yeah. help us create more of these and and catalyze coherence and we'll have more conversations with jeremy and, and other people like him okay. thank, thank you so you. much cheers thank, thank you, you.